Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and the Altus Foundation coaching course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. This episode's guest is Dr. Phil Wagner of Spartan Science. Phil spent eight years as a strength and conditioning coach at the University of California, Berkeley and the University of California, Los Angeles, where he was involved in winning three national championships. He was also a performance coach for the Canterbury Crusaders rugby team in New Zealand and the New South Wales Waratahs rugby team in Australia. Following his coaching career, Phil graduated from medical school as a physician from the University of Southern California, focusing on studying biomechanics at their School of Physical Therapy's Biokinesiology Lab. Phil founded Sparta Performance Science in the Silicon Valley as a facility to directly measure and enhance performance alongside athlete resilience to injury. This business evolved to include a larger technology business, Sparta Software Corporation, which was established in 2012, which provides an athlete data management platform to establish evidence-based practices within sports organizations. On this episode, Phil and I discussed many topics, including Phil's background, how big is the Sparta team currently, Phil discusses how he has gotten his entire team at Sparta to share the company's core values and vision, why Phil decided to go back to medical school, Phil's influences, both professional and personal, what are the good and not so good things that Phil currently sees within the physical preparation profession, and what solutions would he offer for the not-so-good things that he's seen. Phil talks about the importance of how we perceive feedback and why we should learn the difference between disagree versus dislike. 
Phil discusses why he feels it's important for coaches to develop empathy as this can help develop a greater degree of relatedness with our athletes. Why did Phil call the company Sparta? Phil discusses why it is so important to approach data with an open and critical mind. Phil talks about how the squat, deadlift and the bench press had the highest correlation to eccentric rate of force development. Phil and I discuss about confirmation biases within science. Phil shares with us the testing protocols that they utilize in Sparta. Phil shares with us the training system employed in Sparta. Phil discusses the partnership that Sparta has with many other elite organizations around the world. Phil discusses the future of Sparta science. Phil shares with us his biggest lessons he's learned so far in his career in life. Phil gives us his top resources and advice to all the listeners. And finally, if Phil could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? This was an outstanding episode with Phil Wagner, guys, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Phil Wagner, it's an absolute pleasure to have you come on to my podcast, my All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. You are somebody, sir, who I've been wanting to come on to this show for a long time, and it's great to finally link up. Phil, just for the listeners who might be too familiar with who you are, just fill us in on the background. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, Robbie. Um, yeah, so my background really began uh, as an athlete and was rather surprised the level of, of guesswork that went on um, to address the injuries that I had as an athlete. And, you know, so as a result, became a strength and conditioning coach and, uh, you know, saw a lot of the the guesswork, but it was good guesswork that went on with athletes and injuries, both in sports medicine and uh, the preventative side. And so went to, uh, to medical school um, to see how it was done with patients and really learn how medicine approaches data and ultimately um, set up a technology company um, here in the Silicon Valley to really leverage um, the software engineers and the and the technology community here to be able to provide the industry and, and the athletes with a, um, a more evidence-based plan. So currently in Sparta, how many employees do you have? Do you have a big team there? Because I heard, I think I heard you got like an engineer department and you've got coaches. And... Yeah, we're growing pretty fast. We're about uh, double the size of last year. And, uh, you know, half of those are, are technology or, or engineers. You know, they uh, – you know, like a lot of strength coaches, there's different names for them. You know, there's a performance specialist and a strength coach and a, um, a, a fitness coach. And, you know, for them, it's some are called developers, some are back end engineers, some are front end. Um, so about half of our group right now, our team is engineers. And, um, you know, really one of the interesting things, which I haven't talked about before, is our engineering team uh, uses what's called agile technology and or agile philosophy and the reason why i was attracted to this engineering group that we've hired is agile philosophy they do what's called pair programming Mm. and pair programming means you have two engineers working at the same computer so two guys are actually typing the same code at the same time so it's like me and you dead it's like me and you grabbing the bar and dead listen together we're working as a team (laughs) yeah but and i think but when you think of most engineering, right, you think about guys with their headphones on, a lot of Mountain Dew, and they write code all day by themselves. <laughs> but, you know, this, this environment is much more like sports, which is great. You have two people openly talking, working on the same project, giving feedback, complete transparency, accountability. So they work in pairs 
Um, and it's just a great kind of adjunct to our sports environment to have an en- engineering team with the same characteristics. Yeah, it's great stuff. Just so- something that's just come into my head there as you answered. This was actually part of the questions. But how have you managed to get everyone in Sparta sort of on the same page? Like, you know, is there a sort of Obviously, you know, as a, as a team, there's probably meetings on a regular basis. But in terms of, like, the core values of the company, surely you have a core value and a mission statement and all that type of stuff. But how do you kind of make sure that, you know, the whole team know the vision of the company and the direction it's going in? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, for us, you know, putting together a team is, is certainly, um, I've come to realize, the most important part, which um, a lot of people smarter than myself have, have already found that out. Uh, and so for us... You know, the big key that we've come to realize is really looking to hire athletes um, has been a big key um, because athletes tend to already know how to work in a team um, and athletes tend to already know um, and really take feedback well. Because I think in this day and age, that's also a challenge where a lot of people don't take feedback well. They take it very personally. Yeah, um, but See, if you yeah, come from an athlete, that's that's, that's, because, that's because you're calling the feedback and people take this criticism and you're like, no, no, it's not criticism, it's feedback. Right, exactly. And and so these athletes are used to getting feedback from coaches, and so our team is unique in that they're all you know former athletes, which allows them to work together as a team, but also be pretty accountable with each other. Um, and so that's been a real important piece as we've kind of grown and added people. Great stuff. So another question I've always wanted to ask you. So you say you went back to medical school to kind of learn the more research, you know, aspect of medicine. And, you know, 2022, if you ever go on the Internet and try and download some illegal books and you type in evidence-based, it's always evidence-based medicine. If you ever find evidence-based trend conditioning books, it's always evidence-based medicine. But why why go back and do medicine? Why not just go back and do a course in statistics? Why was it medicine that drove you to? And uh also, too, when you applied for medicine, like, and you were probably asked, why do you become a doctor? Like, did you actually, like, lie and say, oh, I just want to, you know, I want to help people. But in your mind, like, no, I'm doing it for strength conditioning. <laughs> well, I think hopefully people go into strength conditioning to help people as well, you know. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, going into medical school, I was asked, you know, I, I was pretty upfront right away. I actually um, sat down with the dean of the medical school and was upfront on the first day. Wow. I said, look, I have no plans to be a practicing physician. Um, <laughs> and, and I said, you know, there's a lot of things I can do for you that maybe other students can't while I'm here. So I think there's an opportunity for us to have a win-win. So you, and, just, you, you, you just brought that dean into the weight room, showed him a snatch, said, ba-bam, <laughs> not too many med students do that, baby. Well, it was great, actually. They sponsored a um, – uh, some of my coursework was with the New South Wales Waratahs mm. as a strength and conditioning coach. Class. So actually getting that coursework uh, credit for medical school as a strength and conditioning coach might be a first um, that's, that's in, in that realm. That's amazing. <laughs> I, did, I, I, knew, I knew you were down there. I didn't know that was part of the medical program. That is amazing. Yeah, and, and really trying to explain to, to, the, to the dean at the time that, you know, what, what, we, what I was doing was really in line with their mission as well, which was to – you know, you know, fix injuries and prevent injuries from occurring. Um, it was just more, in, much more in an applied manner. Um, and so publications came out of that experience as well as some others, which allowed that medical experience to be much more targeted um, towards the field that I wanted to go into, which is really this injury prevention or injury reduction uh, with active individuals. Great stuff. So, Phil, uh, 
question I like to ask every guest that comes on because it just intrigues me is influences. So who have been the biggest influences on you both professionally and also personally? Yeah, I think professionally, um, you know, my, my first influence was, was a coach by the name of Todd Rice. Um, and he was, uh, very into Olympic lifting and, and speed mechanics. And, um, I think the biggest thing I learned from Todd, aside from how to coach those specific movements was really that every movement and every detail matters. And so really being hands on was, was so critical, um, in terms of giving the cues to individuals. Um, so using that almost Olympic lifting or speed mechanics approach to everything, even like a dynamic warm up. Um, and then I think really starting to work with power lifters at Pennsylvania, Rob Wagner, Jim Steele, you know, those type of influences really helped me realize the, the importance of recovery. Mm. Um, you know, we talked about Jim Steele um, and you know, I, I'll never forget, you know, they started me getting on at that time, the, the paleo diet. And I opened up my lunchbox with my two hamburger patties and Jim opened up his with, you know, 15 hamburger patties and he was going to go eat that day, you know. And so getting an idea kind of that you can remove these mental constructs we place on ourselves of how much protein you can eat at one time or, you know, how much food you can eat. And it doesn't need to be every two to three hours. And your body can process more than 30 grams of protein at a time. You're joking you know, so, me. <laughs> so all these constructs that I had basically put limits on myself, that's really where the powerlifting piece helped. And then it probably personally, the you know, the best influence I've had have been really here in the Silicon Valley, um, being surrounded more by um, uh, entrepreneurs and, and other business professors and the like about how to have – you know, how to grow a business, how to grow a team, um, and, and really how to build something special like a product. But ultimately, personally, they've been uh, hugely influential in what, what we've uh, or what I've been able to do. Great stuff. And, and uh, personally, any, 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 well, I know professionally, those guys you named probably had a personal influence on you too. And I actually heard that story about Jim on, on Zach Evans' podcast. You opened up your <laughs> box too, and then Jim's there, and kind of like, uh, what is this guy? I have two burgers. Are you on a cut, man? Sure. What was yeah. your, you, you left? You left. You went to Penn and came back in some redonkulous weight. You you went in like a two hundred and came back at two forty five or something like that. Or yeah, I, I went out to Penn at about uh, about one hundred eighty pounds, and uh, you know got got introduced to. I'd always lifted, um, you know, but really got introduced to serious lifting where. It was really twice a day and, and competing in the Olympic lifts and um, over the summer got my diet right and, and learned to sleep um, a lot better. And as a result, yeah, that summer ended at about 2.45. And so, yeah, it was uh, – I, I think most of that really came from, from removing the mental limitations of how to eat and sleep that I placed on myself. Yeah. Um, and really that whole concept of everything in moderation um, was obliterated. Um, really by that work with Jim and, and at University of Pennsylvania. Epigenetics, baby. The environment dictates <laughs> the organism's expression. You horse, That's right. You horse that food and sleep into it with that training, and oh, magic shit happens. But like, surely, yeah. it, how, how, how fat did you get? Did you get much fat, or did you keep leaning off on that? You know what? I'm not, I'm not too much of a, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know. There was no measurements that went on. Um, you for just, me it was about you, you just, you just did the mirror test. You looked in the mirror and if you grab a handful, you're like, mm, 
probably needs to dial it back. But if you're like, ah, I still got an outline there, I'm okay. Yeah, for me at that time, it was, you know, I got up to front squat and 200 kilos, and that was, you know, that was the number I was focused on more than, you know, how much, yeah, yeah how yeah. much body fat I had. As long as it helped me clean or snatch more, then yeah. I was fine with however I looked in the mirror. 100%, 200 front squat, I wouldn't fucking, uh, I won't be starting an argument with you then, that guy, see that guy? <laughs> You, Those you. days are long gone. Those days are long gone. Yeah, but still, yeah. still though, I'd be like, hey, you, I have a fight in the back alley. I need you. 200 front squatter guy. Come here, come here. <laughs> uh, Phil, so next question I just want to ask, then we'll get really into the specifics of Sparta and, and the technology, and, and we can get into all the nitty-gritty details there. So in terms of the good and the not-so-good things that you see within the physical preparation um, and sports science professions, what are the good things and not so good things you're seeing? And with the not so good things, what sort of solutions would you offer? Yeah, I think, you know, probably the, the best things that, that we've seen, um, you know, in the field is really, um, you know, the, I think the increased focus on relationships that seem to be occurring. Um, you know, people realizing how important it is to connect with the athlete um, and, you know, because at the end of the day, that's the most important thing is what kind of rapport you have with the individual you're trying to help. Um, you know, I think the, you know, the other piece is I think we we seem to be looking more at the sport itself and the sport coach as a place to learn from as well. Mm. Um, and there's been a big boost in emphasis on recovery techniques. Um which has been great, you know, because I think there's a realization that you can get stronger by recovering or faster by recovering better. Um, and so I think recognizing that's been a, um, a huge boost to the industry. On the flip side, sometimes when we recover too much, we, we might forget about the stimulus, right? Yeah. That there has to be some sort of stimulus to train. Um, and I think, yeah, people out there like Tim Gabbett and others around – making sure there's actually an appropriate stimulus, you know, through training stress balance or other metrics um, is, is kind of riding that ship of doing too little. Um, I think the biggest challenge that the industry still faces, and um, I haven't seen improve very much, is really the, dissen the dissension amongst um, the industry or within the industry itself. Um, <clears throat> and really, uh, one of the things I think that's done better internationally, at least, than domestically here in the U.S., is not taking a philosophy difference personally. You know, at the end of the day, you know, if there's a disagreement on a philosophy, it's it's purely um, philosophical and not a personal objection to the other person. And yeah, I think that's yeah. the largest opportunity as an industry. We all have to approach it that way. You know, and that um, there's certainly more than one way to do things and really respecting each other's um, experiences and education that there's going to be another way. Because that that kind of that doesn't happen in medicine. You know, you'll never see another if you get a second opinion in medicine, that doctor will never say, well, that guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. Right. So you shouldn't go see him. Right. That would never happen. You know, instead, the doctor says, yeah, well, here's what I see, and my recommendations are this. Um, so really focusing on their own philosophy rather than trying to promote their philosophy by taking down somebody else. Yeah, as Mike Boyle, one of my mentors, say, you can disagree without disliking someone. 
That's uh, right. Yeah, Absolutely. And as you said, as many many uh, philosophies. So there's another mentor of mine, Ross J. Sitters, many roads to Rome. But uh, <laughs> like it's something I spoke about an awful lot to in the podcast previously, and something that like I've meditated on an awful lot. It's it was more so there during the winter in the early part of the year. It was just something I was meditating on. And when I say meditate, I just mean thinking. I just say meditate to make myself more groovy than I really am. Ooh, the guy meditates. Ooh, he's really into that new age stuff. But it uh, was this concept of uncertainty uh, that surrounds everyone's lives. And so the biggest uncertainty we all have, Phil, is death. Whether you think about it consciously or unconsciously, moment to moment, but it's the biggest uncertainty we all have. And in my mind, what I, what I came to realize, not saying that's a fact, but just through reading and studying some, I suppose, if you like, phys- philosophical sort of literature, is that as a coping mechanism, what we do as humans is we come up with ego identities uh, because they add certainty back into our lives. And we also come up with these habitual habits, be they habits in our daily lives, like I have breakfast at this time always, and I always eat fish on Wednesdays, and I always snatch and squat on Monday, or else I always it's always squat, bench, and deadlift on these days of the week, and blah, blah, blah. Or whether it's a belief system like relig- or religious belief system or political or ideological, because they add certainty into our lives. It gives us a sense of control. So when you talk about this sort of you know, argument or back and forth or people getting very defensive within our profession, the physical preparation profession or whatever you want to call it, performance performance enhancing specialist really sounds like a, a sex expert that, doesn't it? I'm a performance enhancing specialist in bed. Oh no, sports. Oh, you're no use to me. But uh, like the, the reason why, again, we build up with these egos is to, it gives us a sense of identity. I am a transition coach and this is the way I do things. And if you attack that, you're an asshole and I'm going to tell you why. And it's purely emotional, limbic brain driven rather than Okay, uh, see that like cortex in your head that evolution gave. Try use that rationale. Um, so that yeah. that was something I'm thinking about is you know because of uncertainty we we grab onto these control mechanisms in our lives you know so these ego identities are just coping mechanisms. Because I think a key thing and I've spoke Brett, Brett Bartholomew, a good friend of mine, Liam Hennessy, who's the head of Satanic College here in Ireland, one, an absolute gentleman genius. We spoke about this an awful lot. Is that I think a key thing that needs to start going into the curriculum of coaches or scientists or any human being really no matter what course they're doing is a fundamental understanding of why humans are the way they are you know the the, uh, a fundamental understanding of epigenetics and you know the environment and the organism and the expression of the organism because when you kind of get some awareness of something like epigenetics you get to appreciate oh holy shit like people and things are the way they are for a reason because again the environment has such a massive influence on the expression of an organism and, and then you add to that then the life experiences to the person, and that makes up who anyone is in any current moment in time. So it just gives you an awareness and appreciation for why everyone is where they are. And so that if you're having a discussion with someone and they're just like completely like, no, you're wrong, you know, in your head you go, listen, this this guy is in this position or girl is in this position for a reason. They're they're in this current headspace for a reason, and it just gives you a, a better place for empathy and compassion and understanding. So I'm going to shut up right now because you're the guest, and I've spoke there for about well, I'd say seven minutes, and you need to talk now. <laughs> well, I think, you know, you made a good point. You, one of the words that, that you used, uh, empathy, um, I think is really important for coaches, um, whether it's through the coursework and things that you suggested or, you know, I think that's another reason why it's important that uh, coaches compete in something, um, mm. you know, because it improves their coaching because they have empathy for what it's like to compete, whether it's um, in sports or some sort of event. It certainly doesn't need to be at an elite level, mm-hmm. you know, but, but when there is a competition that requires preparation and training and setbacks, whether it's an injury or something like that, those experiences, you know, 
Yeah, as you as you said, you know, change the expression of an organism through empathy. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, that's what makes better coaches. Most of what I've learned from injuries wasn't from medical school. It was from pushing the boundaries of my own training or my own preparation that um, caused you know these these injuries that I had to learn from how to come back from. Yeah, it's funny you mention that because I heard you say that on one of your interviews too. I don't know. I so the three interviews, this was one with Zach Evanish, one with Rob Pacey, and one with um, Jada Mayo. So it wasn't the Pacey one. I think it was either on Jay's one or it was on Zach's one you mentioned that about injuries. You know, they really helped in terms of uh, developing your empathy. And it's funny because only just lately there I got, and I don't know what it was. It's only just starting to clear up now. I got a slight little, like, I think I got tore something down on my right ankle and it was fucking killing me. But I'm only, it's only kind of just subsided now. But... My fucking stability on the right limb, the whole right side right now. I was doing single leg deadlifts today, and I fucked the kettlebell across the weight room because I'm always like really good at single leg deadlifts, and like my right limb is just it's fatiguing so quickly. I'm like, what's going on? And then like your yep. po- your podcast is playing in the background because I go to the gym when there's no one else there, so I just put on the podcast. So this is the podcast where I train. Oh, that was silence. I'm like one of those weirdos who walk in. Is he listening to nothing? <laughs> yes, I don't need external stimulus like all you weirdos. Just like just lift in a, in a dark dungeon cave. But uh, today I was listening to you talking about empathy. But it, it made me realize, holy shit! Like this, I can see like it, like because I've rehabbed a lot of guys in terms of knees and ankles, and you know you get to appreciate that a lot more. So that really hit home when I heard that. So, yeah, especially the emotional state, right? Um, oh, that unbelievable! When you're injured, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's the aspect people don't think about. They're talking about like the tissue fucking recovery and like the the physiology of it. It's like you know the emotional aspect is uh, way more important than that. So not to, not that yeah. that's so business important. But. Phil, so let's get into Sparta. Um, so get into what you guys are doing. Talk about like these uh, these performance parameters you're looking at, the jump profiling. Um, I also make sure I ask you about this correlation of the squat bench and deadlift to eccentric rate force development, which, <laughs> which, which, when you said it today, I'm not gonna lie, Phil, I, I think that's absolute bullshit. I have no idea how a bench press correlates to that, so you're gonna have to convince me there, bud. Uh, but I'm, del- I'm delighted. It's funny, yeah. cause, I, cause I was like, we talk about this, I'd be like, no, no, I'm not believing it, no, no. Uh, but I thought that was interesting, so we'll talk about that for sure. But before we even get into that, why Sparta? You're just gonna pull that barb in, and then you're gonna keep rolling. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, uh, why, why Sparta? Where did that name even come from? And then get, and then straight from that, you can go right into what you guys are at. You, you, you can take the floor now for the next half an hour. I'll show. Yeah, I think so. Spartan, uh, Sparta came from actually the word Spartan, not from you know the Greek state or uh, you know from the movie Three Hundred. It, it really was trying to convey, you know to try to boil things down to the simplest things possible to make mm-hmm. decisions because one of the challenges with big data or um, any of these athletes or soldiers' lives, you know, is, is really how do we most be most efficient with the most limiting resource, which nice. is time. You know, how do we do the least amount possible for the maximum gain? Um, and so that the name Sparta came from Spartan. You know, I think – the way we've tried to go about things is is continuing to refine and take that approach of a uh, you know an inch wide and a mile deep. So really trying to suck suck dry everything that that we do, um, you know, as a, as a way to simplify. And you know, a lot of that would never have been possible ten years ago because of the evolution of databases and technology that's allowed 
you know, the collection of data and pattern recognition, you know, through things like machine learning to figure out, okay, what's the best um, approach or what's the best diagnostic for each injury or what's the best prescription for each injury. Mm. I think what that requires is, is really two, at a high level, two things. One is um, a really strong technical team and, and framework um, within software. And I think then the other thing that, that requires is an open mind. Um, and that meaning I have no idea nor any plans to have bench effect eccentric rate of force. And I have no idea why. I really don't. Um, but approaching the data with an open mind, that's what we found, um, or that's what our data scientists found. And Mad, isn't it? I, yeah, I have no idea why. Um, and, and a lot of our athletes, in fact, almost all of our athletes that, that we see and, and most organizations that we work with don't use bench. Um, but the ones that do, that's just what we found. And, um, you know, bench is not part of my philosophy, but it, again, back to that point we were talking about earlier, open mind enough to that was, you know, one of the major causes to improve it. Um, not the largest one, thankfully, but um, squat still has been the most effective deadlift was second and and so the only theory there is if the big three are the first um three ways to affect and improve eccentric rate of force then the theory would be that anything heavy is is the reason why mm. um but again not have no idea why we're just or at least not sure just guessing taking a stab in the dark and i think what happens a lot of times with research is you go in with this hypothesis and you're going to find a way to make that hypothesis right. Um, and unfortunately that's not the right way to approach data and science, right? Is to try to prove how smart you are, um, is not the right approach. You know, the data scientists that we work with a lot are outside of our organization. And I think one of the surprises that they have is that we change what we do from their findings. And these people that we work with, these are data scientists at Stanford, at other universities, and they work with orthopedic surgeons and medical schools. And even they have explained to us that when they find things, if it's against the hypothesis of who's asked for it, they don't make the changes that the data finds. And they, so one of the surprising they, things they, they, they found. They, they don't make the changes. They don't make the changes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure, that's all. Sure, have you ever read that book, Bad Pharma? Fucking knock your, knock your brains out. Yeah. They're at that yeah. all the time. Yeah, uh, right. this, this, this isn't the results we wanted, but could you maybe, if we give you some money, like, uh, show you the results? Yeah, so or, or they change the variables, right? They're like, yeah. well, we, we didn't mean to look at those variables. Like, we'll, we'll look at these variables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was one study, yeah. uh, one study they were looking at, and it was like... Uh, this drug, it, uh, it, it, it caused cancer in everyone, except for people between 63 and 65. And it was like, and then they, they used that variable then to say that the drug was safe. And I was just like, this is fucking crazy. What's going on? Yeah. And I, and I think that's, you know, um, that's something that at least we, I think we do or I do uniquely is that we, we try to stay unbiased to these results mm. because at the end of the day, you know, it's whatever helps athletes is that's our philosophy. Yeah. Like I, I like Olympic lifting. I love coaching it. I love doing it. If, 
it showed me it was harmful for athletes or it didn't help, you know, I would never do it. Um, I hate swimming. If they told me backstroke was the most effective way for an American football player to be healthy, we'd build a fucking pool in the back, you know. So it really, whatever helps is um, kind of our philosophy. And I think it's important when you look at data, you know, staying open, but at the same time, yeah, not trying to change things quickly to suit your philosophy. Very hard, though, because, like, even if you think you're – I speak about this with James Smith, I think, all the time. Like, you know, you're talking about, like, people portray science to be objective or that if we're trying for science to be objective, it'll never be objective if human beings are always the ones run the experiments because – even if you even if you are saying, yeah, I'm being completely rational objective here, I'm putting all my biases like you've got subconscious fucking biases that you're not even aware of that are, are driving right. how you're perceiving this in reality. So it's just to try and be as objective as possible. But yeah, but, but, but like it's clear as day that if you get a result and it's going against what, what you thought it would and then you're just like, oh, I'm still not going to like uh, the supposed fucking the lipid uh, hypothesis of uh of heart disease with, with Ansel Keys, He's like, oh, these 22 countries, 16th on correlate, but I just won't put the 16 in, I'll just show the 6. And, hey, I'm on time, hey. And yeah, That's right. Yeah, so... Yeah, uh, so it's not a strength and conditioning problem, right? It's a, it's a, it's a human problem, oh, right? Yeah. That we try to fit, you know, our biases towards it. And like you said, a lot of times we're not even aware of what's going on um, in terms of those biases. Yeah, and another example is, you know, we've had a lot of publications um, and some get denied by journals and, and get accepted in one pass by another journal, right? Only because, you know, humans are the one evaluating it, yeah, right? Yeah. And yeah, yeah it's, it, it sheds light that all research is certainly not 100% objective because humans are involved. So, Phil, get into what, 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 what are you doing there, Spider, in terms of talk about, like, the technology. So just jump profile and tell the listeners about, you know, that you're looking at the – eccentric, which you call the load, the concentric, which you call uh, the explode, and then the concentric impulse, which is your drive. Tell us, uh, you know, why you're looking at that as one of your primary sort of uh, assessments, and then maybe talk about some of the other technology stuff you've gone on, and then maybe talk about how you're branching this out to partners in America, Australia, and England. Yeah, and don't forget your little brother over there, Wales, too. Wales, yeah. Did I say... Or- <laughs> Wales and Scotland, just, 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 just so we're clear, and you, you probably know this because you're a travelled American, Ireland, yeah. the Republic of Ireland, is not the fucking UK people, okay? Yeah. Northern, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, they're the UK, okay? It's funny because I always get, I also, I have friends in America, like, I'm going to be the UK next month, and I'm like, so, wait, don't do that. That's like me saying to you, hey, Phil, I'm up in Toronto next month, you want to come? That's what I was going to tell you, yeah. 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 Yeah, our, our our Canada is the uh, closest thing to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Misrepresentation. You, you, you you'll know from being in Australia. Did you ever call a New Zealand person Australian? So what, yeah. what part of Australia from? I'm from New Zealand. Oh, yeah. I just turned you away and go. Oh, sorry. All right. Anyway, yeah. back 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 to the series stuff. Yeah, I think uh, you know you you discuss those variables pretty well. I think you know for us we've named them those really. Um, not to try not from a market. Well, it is from a marketing standpoint, but not to sell more product, but to market it to the athletes, mm-hmm. right? Because at the end of the day, sports medicine professionals and coaches, we're all salesmen to sell the philosophy and the approach to the athlete, um, and to the organization. And so 
the better they can understand these things um, and the simpler it is to understand, the, the more engagement um, there's likely to be from the athlete or the individual. And so that's been a big piece. Um, you know, as we continue to develop, you know, there's, there's other areas that uh, we've used and looked at, particularly on the rehab or prevention side, which is uh, we do a balance test um, looking at sway velocity. Um, on what? Uh, left versus right. So sway velocity is really that how much when you're balancing on one leg, how much you move on the plate when you're balancing. So I'm, I'm but, standing on a force plate, but what's my free leg doing? Is it bent up at 90 degrees and I'm just standing there? Well, that's a good question. So we spent a lot, we spent about five years figuring out the variables to look at where the height of your knee lift didn't matter. Because at the end of the day, if you're an athlete, you're going to find a way to cheat the test. Well, so how do we make it's sure just you for, can't It's just for standardization, though. Would you not want to standardize that? Yeah, no, I think there – you know, the idea is that, you know, if, if it is deployed, you know, people aren't going to follow directions, at least not here in the U.S., because everybody's so competitive. Um, so <laughs> what, rather than trying to standardize the knee height, how do we stand, how do we look at it a different way and standardize the test by standardizing the variables? Because we know, we know we can change the variables. But it's a lot harder to change human behavior. It's so, so so funny you mentioned. I just got this image of like people talking about libertarianism. No, you're encroaching on my rights. I will not bring my knee to ninety degrees. Damn you. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, yeah, we look at with the knee picked up. We'll look at that sway velocity, how much the body is moving from that center of gravity. But then we also look at that return to center. Because mm. if somebody – there's two things. It's also it's your stability or your sway velocity. Very good. But then there's also how quickly you correct back. And the reason why that's been key is we found those at risk for injury, they grossly overcorrect. And so they, in a way, they lose that fine motor control to just slightly get back to center. Like me, my right? fucking ankle right now. <laughs> that's right. You know, so you could actually – move in that gross manner right but it's that fine correction where the injury tends to disrupt that's very and so that's very a huge part of what we're looking at and uh you know continue to try to improve um and we've we've probably the other thing is we've grown a lot into the military and a lot of the injuries there are impact mm -hmm. from jumping out of planes and tanks and trucks and all yeah, those as, types as, as you do as you do in your daily life right exactly and <laughs> so you know we look at a single leg landing test, too, as a real nice test for impact and how really measuring both how hard you land and the time it takes to stabilize on the landing. Yes. And so the nice piece about that, we think, is that one of the more difficult things is to judge that late stage return to play. Like when your ankle gets better, you know, in a week, like that's the toughest part, right, is to go from 90 percent to 100. And how do you truly evaluate that readiness? And so an aggressive time to stabilization landing, uh, we believe is a nice kind of piece to look at. Great stuff. So, are you aware of the work of Matt, jo Matt Jordan up in Calgary? Because he's he's done an yeah. awful lot with jump profile and looking at you know uh, the eccentric profile too and the rate of force film. But I was talking to Lauren Lando yesterday, and Lauren said he was talking to Matt lately, and, and uh, he said that Matt had said that he's seen discrepancies of up to twenty percent between one limb and another in some elite performers 
and he was saying that with some of those performances, he wouldn't actually go near that. Like so, like you're thinking about like maybe people in long jump or triple jump, like that. Some sometimes that much of discrepancy is uh, is actually warranted for their performance. Because when you when you tell it to most people, they're like, "Holy shit, twenty percent! You're gonna fucking blow up, man! You're in huge risk for an injury." But another interesting point that I've heard from Matt is that two years post injury, people are still showing uh, lagging deficiencies in the in the previously injured limb to the to the injured one. So. It just goes to show that you know these 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 uh, technologies that can look at the kinematics and kinetics are can can prove to be vital stepping forward in terms of the return to play protocols for sure. Yeah, Matt Matt's work is great, and I think one of the thing it, it goes back to the point we made earlier where you go into a study and you're like, yeah, of course, left versus right is going to be associated with injury, but the reality is it's usually not um, mm. because you know, that discrepancy is not necessarily a hindrance. It might be required for the certain event that individual's in. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think the other challenge is anytime you have start on the plate or start on force production, that eccentric variability is so high that it's unreliable. So you really, when you look at left versus right or dual force plates, jumping onto the plate is, is the only real reliable way if you're going to evaluate the eccentric rate of force. Which is a lot of what Matt does. Yeah, dropping, well. dropping on it or jumping up on it, dropping down on it. Um, yeah, anything that comes onto down. it, because yeah, because one of the challenges, right, with looking Gra- at eccentric gravity, gravity that bastard. <laughs> one of the challenges with eccentric rate of force, right, is of most of the variables, it tends to be the most um, variable, and mm. so as a result, how do you choose the movements that? Still make it reliable. Why do you think that? Why do you think it's the most variable? Which what? Why Why do you think eccentric is the most variable? Um, well, when you look at it from a single leg standpoint, it's usually um, a strength issue. You know, in that um, you're either fatigued or just weak in the first place. Yeah. And so, as a result, you know, most people have one or the other. You're either weak or you're tired because you've been training. Yeah. And so, as a result, that eccentric variability on a single leg is so high. Yeah. It's fa- fascinating too because I mean, you know, a lot of that stuff from your man, um, oh, what's his name, Boss Van Bjorn, is that his name? He's a guy doing a lot of work with Franz Bosch. But you know, this this concept of, you know, that when, when you're when you're at max velocity that, you know, your muscles are acting basically isometrically that, and if you're fucking weak as a kitten, what happens is instead of being able to hold those muscles isometrically, yeah, actually your muscles take up some of that eccentric force where that should have been distributed out to the Elastic components and the tendons. So your serious elastic components and your parallel elastic components should take up that uh, elastic energy and then transfer that to the tendon complex, and that should load and explode with the energy rather than your muscles. So it's just interesting too that you know that you do need to be able to, your muscles do need to be able to withstand a lot of force so that you can you can basically not fucking blow up as you run. But it's just an interesting concept because you know every article you read up until before that was like uh, stretch only cycle is eccentric, and then it's followed by yep. the amortization and concentric. They're like you really don't want to actually do an eccentric there in your muscles because that's actually an injury mechanism. You're supposed to say isometric. Well, that's the thought anyway. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with the, with their work. I think the the caveat though is that that is under the utopic theory that no one's ever been injured. Yeah. Right, because you know one of the things to add on to it is if I have a you know 16 year old that's never been injured, then you're right. I probably don't even need to do eccentrics. But, you know, here in reality, like most athletes have a laundry list of injuries and therefore structural disruptions. 
question, so, a question for you, Phil. Yeah. And uh, like I asked this in Orlando, I asked it of Ferguson Beta, and they were actually kind of well, they they did, they, they were in agreement with, with me. Not not that I want you to be in agreement, but like I I often see this on social media. You get lads and they're like. Non-contact injuries shouldn't happen, and it's coming down to the preparation of the athletes. Who's who's the coach of these athletes? Look at them getting soft tissue injuries. And like my thought process is that sport is the most abnormal thing we as humans—not the most, but it's extremely abnormal in our evolution as a species. If you were to bring someone back from Paleolithic days and say, "Hey, do you want to go to a football game?" First of all, he wouldn't know what you were saying because he probably can't speak the language. But if you brought him to it, he'd be like, "What is going on here? Why are all these people expending so much energy and?" how come they're so big and fast and stuff like this so basically what I'm saying the sport is completely abnormal to us so injuries are obviously going to be a normal part of sport now obviously I'm not saying that, 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 that we should accept that there is going to be some like we're trying to prepare the athletes as much as we can but like sport is abnormal is what I'm saying so like injuries are, are abnormal but they're abnormal because we're doing an abnormal activity absolutely Absolutely. So, so, like, you know, people are like, oh, you should never get soft tissues. I'm like, shut up, you idiot. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, a big, you know, kind of debate that I've seen has been around, you know, not using the word injury prevention and, and using injury reduction yeah, instead, reduction. Yeah, yeah. which I think is accurate. You yeah, know, so do I. Yeah, you're not preventing or eliminating injuries. You're really just trying to reduce them mm-hmm. in the same way that another misunderstood term is injury prediction. Um, those who don't have a strong stats background – um, confuse prediction with guarantee yeah, when yeah. really prediction is is an odds ratio and that there's likely things to happen in, in certain situations, um, you know, and, and really data is trying to, you know, help you place better bets, right, um, in certain circumstances with specific individuals. Mm, absolutely. So, Phil... It, is is Sparta still a training facility? Like, do you still train athletes? Can people like show up and be like, "Hey, make me a beast," and they're like, "Yeah, no problem." Yeah, yeah. We still uh, we started as a training facility, and we still have, you know, still the facility is training, you know, anywhere from fifty to hundred athletes a day, depending on the day, um, depending on the season. What type of athletes, Phil? Right now, uh, we see a lot of pro baseball athletes because. Um, you know, baseball's it, it's in the World Series right now, um, but uh, most of the teams are done, so that's the major group we see right now. Um, and so it, it'll shuffle depending on the month or the year, you know. And we still use it as an opportunity to really um, leverage technology as a way to help each individual and really educate them, um, you know, as they're going through their career. And it's been really fulfilling because a lot of them you know, have, have been with us through high school, college, and some have even made it through that eye of the needle into the professional realm. Baseball players, are they really <laughs> are they really athletes? You know, I think one of the things with baseball players that's, <clears throat> you know, impressive is the number of games they have to play. Oh, it's sickening. And travel that you go through. Certainly it's not physically demanding like rugby um, or your football or other things, but – you know, the mental fortitude and the resilience to withstand, you know, 160 games um, is pretty impressive. And the other thing that's always been impressive to me is the level of uh, resiliency you have to have to go from sitting down and doing nothing for 60 minutes, and then you might have to do an all-out sprint with no warm-up because you had a triple. Yeah. You know, and so, 
you know, the, the muscles have to be prepared to do nothing cold and then do something extremely explosive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just love when I see, like, a big fat guy just knock one out of the park and he's just like, see that guy? He makes millions just to do that. Yeah, yeah, but, but uh, at the same time, you know, standing in the box, batter's box with a 98-mile-an-hour fastball or a, you know, pretty wicked curveball is, is a tough thing to do. Oh, absolutely. Same with, like, do you ever see world-class star players? You know what I mean? Darts is hilarious, so there's just big, massive, fat, drunk guys, but yet they can put this that three darts in this little tiny space. It's amazing, you know? If ever the world comes to, to, to a situation where we need someone to do that, that's there, the guys you want. I'm not going to tell our baseball guys you just compared them to uh, to dart professional dart players. <laughs> I don't think that's going to go over very well. No, 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 no. I'm, a, I'm an ignorant Irishman with baseball. See, again, my, I, I grew up playing hurling, which is the crazy Irish sport that's a hybrid between field hockey, lacrosse, and baseball. So for for people who don't know it, who are listening to this, so Phil, it sounds like you've, you've heard of it or seen it. But for people that haven't seen it after this, Make sure you listen to the rest of this podcast because this podcast is brilliant, so don't do anything else. Don't, don't you dare stop this podcast. It's only after this podcast is done. But uh, go on to YouTube and type in Hurling and enjoy yourselves. The funniest video you can probably watch is when Joe Rogan saw Hurling for the first time. That's on YouTube. You type in Joe Rogan sees Hurling for the first time. He's like, what the fuck is this? How have I never seen this before? This is outrageous. <laughs> so to give people a brief synopsis, 15 Irishmen versus 15 Irishmen. We all have essentially baseball bats in our hands. And we just go to town on each other. Uh, there's a small ball that we need to get possession of, and it's whoever scores the most amount of points and goals wins over the course of a 70 minute, 60 to 70 minute match, depending on the grade that's been played at. But uh, it's a, apparently it's the fastest field sport in the world in terms of how fast the ball travels. Um, apparently now I don't. That's Irish people telling me, and Irish people always like completely blow things out of proportion in terms of facts. I tell you, there were 200 lads there. There was four people there, John. Four people were there. And there was no fight. 200 lads and he bet them up. No, it didn't happen like that. But anyway. Uh, but uh, so, but that, that's my sport. And the reason why I bring it up is hurling is such a fast game. So like, when I watch yep. baseball, I'm just like, I can't. I'm just too slow. Yeah, it's like cricket. Yeah, that's yeah. why I actually have a big affinity to ice hockey. And I suppose when I was at Boyles, we trained a lot of ice hockey players. And ice hockey players yep. remind, remind me so much of the Irish hurlers. They've just got like this warrior Celtic spirit. Like, you know, their arm will be broken. And it's like, put me in, coach. You know what I mean? It's like their, their two arms and legs will be broken and they put the stick in their mouth and be like, I'm still going in. It's like, holy shit, I love this guy. Uh, so I, I always felt there was a very common like camaraderie and like sense of ice hockey versus racing with Irish Ireland and the game is just so light and fast. I loved it. But uh, Phil, so yeah. yeah, on that, if I do show up at Sparta, bring us through the system there. So like what, like, so Natalie comes in, is there an assessment? What does he, is there a movement assessment, an orthopedic assessment? Is there a, do we sit down and talk about our lifestyle, sleep, nutrition? Do we then go into like any profiling? Is it just a jump profile that you do as, as the ones we'll be talking about? And then from sort of your training philosophy standpoint, what's that look like? You know, so let's say I'm an athlete, I come to Sparta, I can train four times a week. You know, case study there for you. What, what would that look like? Say I've got 12 weeks of an off season and I'm a baseball player. Yeah. And I think, you know, really the, you know, they'll, an athlete will come in and we'll, we'll do an assessment, which could be landing or balance, or it could be the jump, you know, so one of those, depending on the situation, depending on the individual, if there's an injury, depending on the sport or if it's a military. Um, and so the same thing happens with our partners or clients and that they'll have that intake of the individual and usually spend a couple minutes taking them through one of those force assessments. 
They're then subsequently their program gets automatically sent to their phone uh, specifically for them, and they're right into it. Amazing. You know, program is at this point less about our philosophy and more about what data we've been able to, you know, link to changing which force profiles, um, you know, and, and, and that really varies individual to individual off not only their force profile, but their injury history, their gender, their age, um, and also how much time they have available. You mentioned 12 weeks or, or in four days a week. Um, you know, some people only have, you know, three days a week available or six weeks um, total to train. And so as a result, you know, that program will also shift on time. And I think that's where the value of, of a database and software, um, not just Sparta's, but any software helps because it can be a little bit more nimble and reactive to the realities of all those variables. Are you doing the jump profile every day to come in? Like, are you doing any monitoring from a readiness standpoint day to day? And do you look at anything else? You look at heart rate variability or subjective questionnaires? Or because I think I heard you say that there is there is some way of like prescribing the volumes intensities every day that someone trains based off some of your uh, analysis. Yeah. So we do. Um, we do. Uh, you know, it depends on the situation, but we do RPE. Um, you know, right, for yeah. some individuals after a session, you know, we'll have wellness questionnaires. Um, the biggest value we found on the wellness questionnaires is really the shocking decrease we see in um, self-awareness with the athletes now coming up and growing older. They, they really lack that self-introspection of like, oh, yeah, I am sore in my left hamstring. And so really the wellness questionnaire has gone a long ways to um, really help make them aware of, of how much they slept and what they ate and how they're feeling really, because if you want to change those kinds of habits, it's not going to come from anything other than themselves making that conclusion. And mm -hmm. so that's where we have found a lot of value in the subjective um, reporting like that. Yeah, we, we have, we work a lot with other technologies like Omega wave for HRV and um, as do the, the clients we work with. And so I think, you know, really the tech, we have all those tools at our disposal, you know, and it really depends on the situation of when we employ those. Yeah, we're actually pretty, pretty close with a group out in the UK, um, which includes the Republic of Ireland. And that group, <laughs> is, uh, that, that group is uh, called Precision Hydration. And they do a really good job at sweat analysis, looking at how much sodium's in your sweat and subsequently prescribe a daily salt intake based on that analysis. Mm. And we found, we've had great results uh, both here as well as overseas with um, teams and individuals reducing cramping and muscle strains. Very good, very good. And so just what I was going to ask, there was something I was going to ask there now on something. Oh, yes, Patrick Ward is also the, Yeah, Patrick Ward is a good friend of mine. He's with uh, Seattle Seahawks, and he, he's, he's, uh, he's come out an awful lot saying how how there's actually a lot of research to back up subjective wellness questionnaires in terms of their, their reliability and validity. So it's interesting that you are, are also utilizing those two. If I was to show up at Sparta, uh, <laughs> you're probably uh, this time next week. Hey, Phil, what the fuck? Uh, but if I was to show up at Sparta, Phil, uh, what would a typical training session look like in terms of like, what is your system of program design? Like, so, do athletes go through like a seven-mile-fast release and a dynamic warm-up, and then is there a power block? And I know you're a big Olympic distance guy, so would it move from sort of plyos, uh, med speed work into Olympic distance strength work, and then energy system work? Is 
and I, go, I know kind of it would depend on how many times a week probably someone's coming and time of year, but like in terms of program structure and then maybe in terms of like the overall sort of mesocycle to mesocycle, like your periodization, if you want to call it that. And I know like people are having fucking arguments with periodization. You know, you have Greg Half and Doc Stone, one thing going, everything's periodization. It's a proven fact. And then you got John Kiley and one and he's like, periodization, no, it's a lot of crap because of dynamic systems. And that's not what John's really saying. So, but anyway, I digress. All these people are just having these wars. It's all like just... Everyone just chill out, breathe, just enjoy it. We're all gonna die. You know, so. But uh, so if I walked in, so basically, I'm saying what what would a training? What's the structure of your training sessions? And then from the more sort of bigger picture, from a mesocycle to mesocycle, like do you do like accumulations and intensification to a peaking block, or do you just undulate volumes and intensities? The fact that you've a big Olympic lifting weight background, do you do like the old Russian thing, saying here you've got 800 reps, you got to get that in over the course of the month. We break it down into four weeks. On this day, you hit fucking 45 lists. It only counts when it goes over 70%. It's like, so how does all that look, or do you even worry about any of that? I don't worry about any of that. Nice. Because all, the, the, all those are really, um, you know, uh, you know, constructs we've created, kind of like you mentioned earlier, to create certainty in a world of uncertainty. Exactly. You yeah. know? And, and trying to label mesocycles. And I think we, we certainly believe in periodization and its abstract definition of exactly change training but there's fluid you know. there's fluidity within it it's not an either right. or it's like i have a plan but i realize the plan is too flexible and i need to have contingency plans that's why we do a thing called daily readiness monitoring so that we can change exactly. plan as we go along but it's still in a grander scheme of things right and the fluidity comes from data not from um bias of like well after four weeks we're going to go to a power block love it you know after a strength block because the reality is if i've got somebody like myself, who, you know, back in those days, you know, I went through strength and power blocks as an Olympic lifter. We all you did. know, if front squatting, you know, 200 kilos and my cleans at 110 kilos and I'm doing a strength block. Why? You know, why? You know, and so I think it's the same way with, with athletes that we have now is that, you know, we need to be using data to define what quote unquote block they're in. Yes. Because we're, we're assuming we have to go strength before power. Which in some cases you do, but in a lot of cases you might not. Exactly. Uh, you you yeah. mentioned you mentioned a word too with Zach Evans. It's like your gym is like you're you're like a metrics driven in terms of like it's not like you go to this phase when, when this amount of time is up. It's like when you hit these numbers, then you progress. But before you get on to that, it's so funny you mention that because Al Vermeil is probably the biggest influence on me in terms of program design and periodization. And Al's whole structure is basically off Charlie's one, like kind of virtual integration, but he distilled it into team sports. And Al's whole thing is this, and he's just like a physician. He goes, I run, I run like a diagnostic analysis, which basically tells me where your deficiencies are. And then it's like, this yep. is where, this is where you need the treatment. This is where you need, this is where we can spend our time. And that's the way I, I've been programmed for like the last six, seven years. And I never heard anyone else talk about it. And then I started to doubt myself, like this imposture phenomenon thing, like, Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, you start doubting yourself because because you're thinking this is kind of more original in my thought, and then you think, no, I'm not clever enough to come up with something original. That's stop it. No, you can't give me compliments. Three Irish people are fucking terrible when you give them compliments. They think you're actually like taking the piss out of them. Whereas you Americans are so good at it. You ever compliment the American like, thank you, thank you. Go say you're so kind. Whereas an Irish person is like, would you fuck off? Would you don't tell me I'm good? Uh, but so what I what I would do is I'd always run a profile. So, and the profile will tell me what bucket you fell into. Like, so, like, exactly. Like, for instance, if a guy's work capacity or aerobic indices are off the charts, why are we doing a work capacity block with him when he's weak as shit? Right. He should just get him into the strength block. 
Or some guy whose fucking strength numbers are off the charts, but yet his rate of force abilities or his elastic reactor strength capabilities are terrible and toxic. And it's like, well, that's the next step up in the hierarchy. Why aren't we spending time there? So it's exactly how I've been programming. I have to say, it's really Al. I, I, again, I didn't invent it. I got it from Al. And it's so funny because Al, me and Al were like peas in a pod when it comes to like programming and periodization. So obviously we love each other. But then if we start talking about politics, oh, it's hilarious. He's like Republican, uh, right-wing, you know, he's born in, like, 1950s America, post-World War. He still thinks Russia are still, like, communist, you know, and he's still a bit iffy maybe about, you know, same-sex marriages, whereas, like, I'm at the other end kind of more towards, like, liberalism and, you know, like, that kind of way, and, like, everyone's just, everyone just, you know, hop into the pile and have a great time. So we all have some great chats and that. I'm always, like, I'm going to invite him to my gay wedding, and he's always like, shut up, would you? But it's, <laughs> but it's, it's gas crack, so it is. But he, he's a legend, though. I love him. Scott spent two days in his, in his house back in 2015, and it was just amazing. You know, to be able to, to like, you know, when you have someone who's been, like, a, a mentor and a master, and you, I, like, and I presented, like, sort of d- distillation of his work, and it's influenced me, and he's like, this is amazing. And, like, he's always, like, send me on how you worded that, because you worded that better than me. And I'm always like, ah, oh, you know, get that validation from someone who you look up to so much, you know. At the same time, though, I'm never blinded by, like, you know, it's just because I look up to Al. If Al says something, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with it. Same with Mike Boyle. Mike knows that. So you have to be careful you don't get blinded and just accept enough, like, people, you know, because then that makes me a guru. And the only people that make people gurus is their followers, not the actual guru themselves. But uh, uh, so that's that's really great that you said that in terms of your program and that you do a plan, but it, you know you have that fluidity and so that's excellent. So I mean, is there anything else feel that you want to touch on? I suppose one thing is just talk about like the future Sparta, and maybe also talk about these partnerships you have. So you've been getting these data because I think maybe some of the listeners are still like, so what does Sparta do? Okay, I know it's technology. I'm still not getting. So basically, you you've outsourced your this data and technology of analysis. With this jump profile system, you know, to, to help prescribe training and train loads, and also maybe use as predictive uh, indicators for potential injury. But you, you've linked up with partners, you call them. So I know Andrew Hoodie was one of your first in Kansas. You have people in Australia and England. Uh, is it branching out bigger and wider? And then what's sort of what's next on the horizon then for Sparta? And then after that, we'll just finish up with our, our lightning our lightning round questions. Yeah, I think we we refer to our clients or customers as partners. Um, you know, just really as a reminder that, um, you know, we learn from them, you know, hopefully as much as they learn from us. And, you know, we view those customer interactions, even though, you know, money exchanges hands for the product, we see it as a uh, much greater endeavor than, you know, a buy and a sell, you know, because the majority of our evolutions of the product has really come from um, discussions we've had with customers and clients. You know, so we do have those partners, you know, these clients all over the world and in, in, in the UK, in Australia and South Africa and the US. And, and really having that broad spectrum has allowed us to um, not only gather a shit ton of data. Um, that's an official medical word, by the way. Shit, know, shit ton, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. And so not only gather a lot of data, but then also subsequently, um you know, really continue to evolve the product. So um, we're learning from other sports and other countries in some of the discoveries they've made. Awesome. Great stuff. So, Phil, we've spoken about your background, influences, the good and not so good. We got inspired and spoken about the training systems, spoke a bit about program periodization, the technology, partners. So finishing up here now, in terms of your biggest mistakes and lessons you've learned so far 
in your life, not just even your career, what would you say would be your top three biggest lessons you've learned so far in your life? And they could be anything. Um, yeah, grudges. Don't hold grudges. Being the biggest thing. You know, life's too short. Um, you know, it's better to say sorry than to be right. You know, that's that's probably the biggest lesson, both professionally and personally. You don't you don't strike me as a grudge holder. Well, I've gotten better. Yeah, I had to work at it. Yeah, all right. it's all, so part, think, all, all part of the journey, bud. Yep, that's right. That's right. In terms of your top resources to all the listeners, and these resources again can be anything. So they're not just limited to like a physical preparation book. You know, like oh, super trainer. Everyone has to read that. Which actually I'm reading right now. Wait, I'll prove it. Come here. Where is it? Flip slipping. See? Oh yeah. I remember that blue, yeah. Oh, mine's all blue. Uh, yeah. this, this one's the fifth. I have the fifth, and I got the sixth edition. I bought the sixth edition because I thought it was going to be different. A lot of it was just like an extra appendium from Verkachansky in the back, basically talking about how much Mel Sip was an asshole. I robbed all his work. Verkachansky yeah. read, read that whole thing. Apparently, Sip was apparently a nutball. I, I had friend, I met guys that actually lived with Sip for a little while, as in like visited him, stayed for a few nights. So Keith Snyderman and Joel Jason. Joel Jason said he was an absolute nutball. He was a genie, but a nutball. But anyway, sorry. Back to the question. Your top resources, and they can be they can be resources within actual like domain. So like a resource for strength conditioning, uh, nutrition, physical therapy, or they can be uh, a resource to do with anything like a life resource, like a course, a person, just whatever you want to name out there. Yeah, I don't take um, you know I I, I don't read or or uh, too much, and I don't take um, courses. You know, I think the biggest resource I use is people um, and really trying to find people outside the profession um, nice. have been my best resources. Um, I've learned so much from sport coaches um, and, and, and continue to foster those relationships to see how they look at problems um, and try to solve them. Um, and then looking at other professions and, you know, having discussions with them about how they build their teams and how they approach um, some of the challenges they face. So I think it's really that cross-disciplinary um, relationship that's been the best resource for me, um, whether we're talking about marketing, people that are in marketing, or people that are sport coaches or medical personnel. It's really kind of having a broad portfolio of um, colleagues. Your, your network is your network. Isn't that what they say? Yeah. That's, so, a good, that, that's a good point. You can have that one. You can take that one. because it's, <laughs> it's 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 not mine, so I got it from somewhere else. You trademark it. Phil Wagner, Spartan at the back. You can have that out. Um, what is your current training and nutrition looking like there lately? Now I know we spoke a bit about uh, you know you were saying you're doing some intermittent fasting there when you're on Zach Evanish's podcast, and you were, on that you said you train twice a week, twenty minutes, and you just absolutely demolish those twenty minutes, and it's just all about your recovery. So, what's your current training setup like and your current uh, eating habits? Yeah, I mean, I still follow intermittent fasting um, pretty pretty heavily, so I'll, I'll eat in six-hour windows every day. Um, you know, I think it's more, at this point in my life, it's more for a cognitive benefit mm. um, than, than necessarily a physical one. Um, I just, you know, I guess it's that evolutionary um, response of I'm just much more alert when I'm hungry um, and aware of what's going on around me. More sympathetic. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think from a recovery standpoint, you know, that's where I'm spending most of my time. Um, and then, yeah, I'm still sticking to two days a week, three days a week of 
training, but it's pretty aggressive. Um, these days, the, the type of training I do really depends on what my last previous injury was. Um, you know, I had a grade three gastroc strain about five weeks ago. So, you know, I'm doing a lot of lifting right now because I can't jump or run. So it really shifts depending on which blowout I've forced um, most recently. Uh, but it'll shift between running or Olympic lifting or, um, you know, uh, when you, when you say When you say running now, are you running or are you sprinting? Uh, I'm sprinting, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah, not an aerobic individual by any means. I remember I, I remember I said one time running to Sue McMillan and he just looked at me and he goes, sprinting. And he just yeah. walked and he just walked away and I was like, Yes, sir, I'll never call it running I'll never call it running again if it's below fucking four hundred meters. That's right, that's right. But uh and then final last two there, your top um advice. So again, this is more like, you know, sort of life advice uh to all the listeners and again it can be anything uh, um, it doesn't oh, you there? Yeah, I'm just supposed to cut out there. Uh, I lost you there. What was that? Oh, hold on a second. Hold on a second. And we're back. Your top, your top advice, Phil, to all the listeners. It can be anything. So I know you said there, don't hold grudges. Is there any life advice going forward or anything you'd, you'd offer to any of the listeners? Um, you know, I think really trying to continue to be more experiential yourself, um, whether that's through nutrition or training, because um, I think there's a lot of well-read, well-educated um, people out there, but you know, actually, when you go through the experience yourself, it it it's a whole new um, host of lessons. All right, Phil, last one, Phil. I'm interested in this now. I'm going. Let's say I, I I I'm in California there, and I'm I'm nearby, and I'm like, hey, Phil, remember me? I was that crazy Irish fucker that had John one time. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm in town. And you're like, oh no, oh no, no. <laughs> Uh, and you're like, uh, I hear you're in town too, Phil. And you can't, for whatever reason, I just know you're in town. You can't get away from it. But I'm like, here, Phil, yeah. we're, we're going to dinner, okay? And you can bring 500 people with you. And I'm bringing my magical powers, Phil. So I have the power to bring people back from the dead. You know, there's some very strong cement salts. We'll get it done. Uh, so you can bring five people to dinner, Phil. Who are you bringing and why? Dead or alive? Wow. Yeah. Um I'm not one for history, so I haven't uh, haven't thought that one too too far out. Um, so, so why it doesn't it, 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 you don't need to have history to bring anyone? You can bring anyone you want, but I don't care. Um, five hookers done. <laughs> great, great show, Phil. See you later, guys. <laughs> you just made my staff, who's in the room, uh, crack up laughing. That was a, that was that was pretty solid. You mean um, you mean they've only laughed once since I've been on? Like Jason is a bad job. I mean. You know, the Irish humor is uh, only meant for a few on this planet. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think probably just looking at some of the great leaders of the past, um, you know, or be the people that I, particularly ones that are leading others through some pretty dark times. You know, Franklin Roosevelt comes to mind, Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, Winston Churchill. Um, you know, to me, those are, are, are some of the more interesting ones that, that I'd like to kind of pick their brains out because you know everybody um can lead well during peacetime you know but who can you know maintain that alignment and uh optimism you know when it's really difficult so we have ted we've got sorry we've got ftr we got teddy we got winston we got two more people i thought you said you wanted the history there well I, you know i just know those guys because they were uh much more uh yeah, uh, 
yeah, applied for lack of a better word. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm huge. I'm huge into American history, by the way, for whatever reason, I'm fascinated. So like, I can name all the presidents back to back. I've studied all the presidents fairly in depth. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not even, uh, sure where I'd go to probably Louis Pasteur. I think the other, the other ones that, um, and, and Thomas Edison would be the fifth. I think the people that, you know, encountered failure time and time again um, to ultimately found something that changed the world. I'm going to bring Nikola Tesla along so also him and Edison can just have an argument on me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. D-C-A-C, just going to go back and forth. Uh, yeah, Edison, in fairness to him, James, was he, he said he failed. Uh, you know, it could be just folklore, but apparently he failed a thousand times where he finally found the material for the light bulb. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, those are some great guys. FDR is, is one president I've studied a lot. Actually, I've studied a lot of Teddy as well. Teddy is an interesting character. You know, he stood up for the little man in terms of labor, but then again, he was an imperialism. And, and behind it all, he had this like duplicity to his personality, which is very interesting. And yeah, then, that, that's probably the most interesting piece to me. There was a lot of uh, yeah paradoxes that existed with the way he approached life. Yeah, you get that with a lot of the great people. People, people want all their heroes to be just one hundred percent perfect. You know, they had no flaws. Like it's not the way it is. Or you. Martin Luther King, he had his flaws. Gandhi had his flaws. You know, JFK, of course, had his flaws. But they still not take away from the great things they've done. I always tell people, like, yo, JFK, they should go back and read about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Holy fuck, that man stopped the world from, like, we wouldn't be around only for that man. Yep. So That's right. So, Phil, this was absolutely amazing. Uh, I hope uh, hope it didn't freak you out too much with uh, my just my, my general human beingness. Uh, no, it's darkness that was more disturbing. Oh, this, and you like, I turned the phone on. I, tur- yeah. I, turned, I turned the phone on halfway through. <laughs> so, just for the listeners, you can't see this, but I'm doing like, uh, you know, like, that ah, doesn't matter. I can't even explain it to me. You need to see it on video. Phil, though, but this is brilliant. It uh, really was, and uh, you're an absolute gent, and you're definitely someone who's akin to my sort of ass- outlook on life. You're, you're, you're like as Dave Tani says, don't take yourself seriously, but take your passion seriously. So I like that about you, sir. So. Um, I'm someone who has a huge love for understanding everything possible about the human experience and, and trying to upgrade the human experience as much as possible through just studying humans and the human condition as much as I can. So you are someone who seems to be on a very same wavelength. So huge respect to you for someone who goes back to medical school just to up your status as a training professional is, is absolutely, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? There's a word I'm trying to think of there. Commendable. Extremely commendable. I, it's a great honor to have you on, and I, I truly actually do mean that. I know I'm a messer now, but I, I do mean it was a great honor to have you on. Uh, hopefully, we'll catch up again. So, Phil, if there's anything now that you want to uh, park here before we leave, so maybe your contact details or Spark's contact details, or if somebody was on and was like, you know, I'm really interested to know more about this technology, maybe interested in talking to someone at Spark that would become a partner, where would they go for that information? Yeah, probably the best bet is I'm on Twitter at uh, Dr. Phil Wagner is my handle. That's or our website's just SpartaScience.com. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll put all yeah, that for having me on, and uh, yeah, certainly reach out if you are in the California area. Absolutely, absolutely. So just stay on for one more minute, and I'll wrap up. So guys, what an amazing podcast with uh, Dr. Phil Wagner. Uh, absolutely. And by the way, am I pronouncing your second your surname right? Yeah, yeah. Just making sure. Because you ever know you pronounce someone's name wrong and they're kind of looking at you go, that's not how you say my name. Oh, crap. Uh, but I am. So anyway, so an absolute pleasure to have Phil on, guys. And for everyone listening, if you can share this out and also check out Spartan, I'll have all that up in the show notes, the website, Phil's uh, Twitter handle and all that type of stuff. But for now, everyone, take care. I'll talk to everyone soon. And as I say, at the end of every single show, 
Stay strong, because strength is important. Thank you.